This is American Origin Stories. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Today we're going to talk about the origin of junk food. So let's start in Southern Africa, because that's where most scientists believe the first human beings emerged. So far, their best estimate is about 300,000 years ago. Human beings in the anatomical form that we know ourselves today, roughly this height and weight and so forth, walking on two legs, this version of ourselves is about 300,000 years old, so we think. It's important to note, however, that what we know or think we know about the past, traditionally, according to science, comes from whatever records we have that have been preserved. So in the case of talking about humanity's origins, we are talking about a fossil record. What is a fossil? A fossil is a remnant, an impression, a trace of an animal or a plant of some past geologic age that has been preserved in the Earth's crust. As Britannica puts it, quote, the complex of data recorded in fossils worldwide, known as the fossil record, is the primary source of information about the history of life on Earth. But only a small fraction of ancient organisms are preserved as fossils. And usually, only organisms that have a solid and resistant skeleton, end quote. In other words, we have no idea. We cannot really be sure about much of anything in history from the fossil record. So even today, there is so much mystery about the world right now. As we speak, 80% of our oceans are unmapped. 80% unobserved unexplored. We've never been able to dig down more than seven miles into our own planet's crust. The center is about 4,000 miles down. We got to seven, and it wasn't even a very large hole. So when our best science tells us human beings in the form we currently are now, anatomically, are about 300,000 years old, we can barely see a few miles into the water or the earth of the present, we kind of really do have to take that with a grain of salt. And as one example, we can talk about the Native Americans of the Northern Plains, the Arikara tribe, for example. Some from that tribe might tell us about the past from a generational solidarity that's a lot stronger than, for example, the majority of people now living in the United States. 
most of whom have very little connection to their ancestors. So some from the Arikara tribe might say that according to information that's been passed down from generations, generations who remained in contact with their ancestors, they believe and have been told that human beings have been around a lot longer than 300,000 years. Some Arikara natives might also say that food and our relationship to plants and animals, the kinds of which human beings eat for nourishment and sustenance, is of a very high and deep and significant importance. Our relationship to food is important physically and emotionally and psychologically and spiritually. A lot of Native American traditions would say that part of being in balance personally requires living in balanced harmony with our food and our food systems. There are many ancient traditions from indigenous to natural that also speak to the great significance of balance and moderation. Quote, nothing is worse than a person who fills his stomach. It should be enough for the son of Adam to have a few bites to satisfy his hunger. End quote. That's a saying from one of the great Abrahamic spiritual traditions of the Middle East. And we would say for the entire course of human history, recorded history, and in the fossil record, whatever little we have, that there was never, ever such a thing as junk food. That would be an oxymoron, a word that means sharply foolish. How can something be both food and junk? That's sharply foolish. The expression junk food didn't even exist until 1951. It was coined by an American nutritionist, a scientist named Michael F. Jacobson. The first official definition would only arrive in 1972. So the existence of junk food as a concept is brand new, but it's totally overtaken the way human beings eat on planet Earth. And in doing so, the way we relate to life itself. We can hardly imagine something more foundational, more fundamental outside of our food. Now, it used to be, for all of recorded history, that human beings mostly ate what we could grow or hunt locally. Food was always homemade, always relatively healthy and seasonal with unprocessed ingredients. There's an agricultural ecologist named Gary Nabin who describes in his excellent brief history of cross-border food trade, he's specifically talking about the American Southwest, that, quote, trade between farmers, foragers, and fishers has gone on for millennia. Gary writes, quote, salt, corn, beans, turkeys, wild chilies, acorns, agaves, and other foods have been part of extra-local trade in the region for at least 4,000 years. Traders may have taken Mayan chocolate as far north as Chaco Canyon long before Spanish soldiers and miners and priests arrived in the region. Of course, the Valley of Mexico became the prehistoric hub for food trade in Mesoamerica, while the lands we now know as the southwestern United States were considered on the fringe of the Aztec Empire, a barely developed frontier. He goes on, quote, Jesuit missionaries changed the diets of people in this region when they arrived here around 1687, bringing with them many seeds and fruit tree cuttings and livestock and poultry breeds. Some items from the Sea of Cortez, like salted fish 
and the jerked meat of sea turtle may have been transported many miles inland while other items like olive oil and altar wine from mission grapes were traded to missions that still lacked orchards and vineyards on the coast. End quote. And he goes on. And here's where the big change takes place. 1906. That's when, quote, trans-border trade accelerated due to railroads. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. The railroad tycoon Edward Harriman, who developed rail cars with ice houses and refrigerators, fresh produce from the west coast of Mexico could now enter the U.S. marketplace and arrive at its destination in a matter of days. As Harriman's Pacific Fruit Express became the largest operator of refrigerated railroad transporters in the world, fresh produce from the bi-national Southwest grew from a negligible portion of the U.S. grocery market share to 40% of the U.S. produce sales in 1929. End quote. So as human beings migrated from farms into cities, at rapid rates, the price of flour, with its low fiber and high carb count, helped lead to cereal production of edible products, way easier to preserve. So this all lays the foundation. The very first junk drink was fruit juice, sugar, water, with a little carbon dioxide and citric acid. That was the precursor to Coca-Cola, which of course originally was made with cocaine in it. The first mass-marketed junk food was Cracker Jacks, a sweet, savory mix of popcorn, molasses, and peanuts that made its debut at the Chicago World's Fair in about the late 1800s. The slogan, the more you eat, the more you want. So a little ironic background on that first junk food, the Cracker Jack, debuting in Chicago. Chicago comes from the native Algonquin language, Chicaqua which means striped skunk or onion. According to early explorers, the lakes and streams around Chicago, Illinois, Illinois, another native word, those lands were full of wild onions and leeks. The origin of popcorn is also from the native peoples. Corn, to some, for example, like the Arikara tribe we spoke about at the beginning, natives of the Northern Plains, corn represented the source consciousness of the Almighty, the Creator what some might call the female aspect or womb of creation. In some communities, native peoples would pierce the center of the corn cob. They'd spread oil over it, and they'd lay it near fire and cause the kernel to pop. That was the origin of popcorn. And then there are tales of natives giving popcorn as gifts of goodwill to English settlers. And those settlers 
they were blown away by this popcorn thing and they experimented with it. And one of the experiments was mixing it with milk and sugar. And that was the first breakfast cereal. Well, it's incredibly apt that corn, something so sacred to native people, would end up being the kernel of American junk food. Cracker Jacks cereal, corn syrup. Now cut to today. The Smithsonian Magazine, which is a terrific periodical, by the way, has a piece which documents journalist Michael Moss detailing food makers and their huge junk food R&D research and development and marketing enterprises. Quote, a multi-billion dollar engineering process that creates flavor profiles designed to appeal to humans' innate love of sugar and the additional lip-smacking triumvirate of salt and fat and crunch. The average consumer wouldn't necessarily discover these food products without some help. According to Moss, the $1 trillion food industry, with so much at stake, pays to have its processed foods placed at eye level on grocery store shelves. And of course, there are huge advertising campaigns and tie-ins with celebrities, TV shows, cartoons, and movies. Children are the most vulnerable. The Center for Science and the Public Interest, a nutrition watchdog organization, reports that since the 1990s, the rates of obesity have doubled in children and tripled in teens, and that most are eating nutritionally poor diets that are too high in calories, saturated and trans fat, refined sugars and salt, and too low in fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and calcium. Everyone's looking ahead to a future full of adults with serious chronic illnesses like diabetes, heart disease, and cancer. That was a 2006 report. Now, how about now? There are piles and piles and piles of research which show processed foods raise the risk of heart disease, cancer, diabetes, and obesity. And today, according to the Daily Mail, after researchers analyzed shopping baskets of 100,000 people, they found that a whopping 60% of the food consumed in the United States contains additives. This is a new record, and they're calling it a junk food crisis, with frozen entrees and pizzas and sodas the worst in terms of the volume of additives. And despite health campaigns warning against obesity and trying to focus efforts on the importance of diet and exercise, preservatives, sweeteners, coloring agents, these are all linked to real health problems. World Magazine did a survey of the citizens in 20 countries just to see how much junk food people eat on average a month. Unsurprisingly, the United States and then the United Kingdom topped the list. France and Sweden came in third and fourth, followed by Austria and Mexico and South Korea. The United States eats the most fast food out of any country in the whole world. According to the delicious-sounding barbecue lab, the fast food business is still expanding by about 2.2% annually. This despite all the health dangers associated with frequent fast food eating. It's still rising. And according to that barbecue lab, most Americans eat fast food one to three times a week, and over 83% of U.S. families eat it at least once a week. And that study suggests that many people think eating fast food 
is relatively inexpensive compared with other restaurants, but it's significantly more expensive than preparing food at home. And a lot of people think, this is a stereotype, that it's lower income families that consume more fast food. It's actually those with higher incomes that consume more fast food. According to the CDC, 42% of adults that have a higher income bracket eat fast food on any given day. It's only 32% of adults in a lower income bracket. McDonald's is still the most popular fast food restaurant. $130 billion was spent at McDonald's worldwide in 2019. Now look, the occasional fast food restaurant meal does not pose a, a serious risk to your health, but regular consumption does. According to Medical News Today, the consumption of commercial fast food in excess has been shown to have detrimental short and long-term effects on health. Even living near a fast food restaurant is associated with a 5% higher risk of obesity. Eating fast food frequently can also raise your chance of depression by up to 51% in addition to the heart disease. And this is all because of the technique of creating junk food deprives the food of its essential ingredients. In order to produce food that can be cooked quickly, remain stable on a shelf for a long time. And it's understandable why eating a lot of fast food or processed food makes us feel terrible because it's deficient in all the nutrients that we need. Now, there are a lot of countries where the consumption of fast food and processed food has been prohibited to a certain extent by law due to their harmful effects on health. Potassium bromate, for example, that's common in bread in the United States. Abroad, it's a suspected carcinogen, meaning cancer-causing, and it's banned for human consumption in Europe and in China and in India, but in the United States, it's just fine. And it's not just potassium bromate. There's something called titanium dioxide. There's something called brominated vegetable oil. There's another one called azodicarbonamid and propylobarabla. It's a mouthful. And speaking of mouthful, we eat it. Eric Millstone, a professor at the University of Sussex in England, is an expert on food additives. And he said all those additives that I just mentioned are, quote, almost certainly, end quote, causing avoidable illnesses, such as cancer in Americans, saying, quote, there is evidence that it may be toxic to human consumers, that it may even either initiate or promote the development of tumors, end quote. Adding that European regulations are more restrictive due to actually prioritizing food safety. And England has good reason to do so. In 1950, less than 1% of the population in the UK was clinically obese. In 2023, that number is 28%. From 1% to 28%. So the British public came to the conclusion that this was not some collective collapse of individual willpower, but the collapse of a responsible food system, hence the need to start aggressive, coordinated regulation. And according to the Chicago Tribune, that's the reason tourists are never going to find Mountain Dew in Europe. Meanwhile, there's a new study that just came out that says over the last few decades, doctors in the United States have been seeing dramatic increases in cancer in adults and in adults younger than 50. And one of the factors of cause they cite, quote, eating a Western diet, end quote. Now, the recognition of the obesity epidemic as a national problem, that started back in 1999, when the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, published a series of annual state-based maps that demonstrated rapid changes in the prevalence of obesity 
according to the Trust for Americans Health. As of last year, four in 10 American adults have obesity, 40% of the country, and obesity rates continue to climb nationwide. West Virginia, Kentucky, Alabama, those are the states with the highest rates, near around 40% of the population. And they say, quote, structural and social determinants are significantly influencing the rates of obesity among adults and youth. That means it's not personal decisions. It's structural and social determinants. Factors such as poverty, food insecurity, housing instability, lack of access to quality health care. Now, the purpose of the report is to analyze the conditions in people's lives which make them more likely to develop obesity, and then it recommends policies that address those conditions. And the report goes on to say that addressing obesity is critical because it's associated with a range of diseases. The cost is unfathomable. Obesity is estimated to increase U.S. healthcare spending by about $170 billion a year, including billions by Medicare and Medicaid. So the report includes recommendations for policy actions. We need to decrease food insecurity and improve the nutritional quality of available food. Funding increases need to be in place that are sufficient enough in every state. Healthy school meals should be available for all students permanently, and we should have increased opportunities for physical activity during the school day. Ending unhealthy food marketing to children. Mexico does that. Impose excise taxes on sugary drinks and devote revenue to local obesity prevention programs to reduce health disparities. We need to expand support for maternal and child health, including supporting breastfeeding. Fund active transportation products like pedestrian and bike paths. And of course, the universal expansion of healthcare. But we're never going to truly be able to escape the junk food crisis without fixing this radical new food system that we're victimized by. As The Guardian reported last year, quote, a handful of powerful companies control the majority market share of almost 80% of dozens of grocery items that are bought regularly by ordinary Americans. There was a joint investigation by The Guardian and Food and Water Watch, and they found that consumer choice is largely an illusion. Despite supermarket shelves and fridges brimming with different brands, in fact, just a few powerful transnational companies dominate every link of the food supply chain, from seeds and fertilizers to slaughterhouses and supermarkets to cereals and beers. The size and power and profits of these mega companies have expanded thanks to political lobbying and weak regulation, which have enabled a wave of unchecked mergers and acquisitions. And this matters because the size and influence of these mega companies enables them to largely dictate what America's 2 million farmers grow, how much they're paid, and what people eat, and how much our groceries cost. Forget inflation. The corporate profits of the food industry demonstrate exactly where the rising prices are coming from. Food monopolies also mean that those who harvest and pack and sell us our food have the least power. At least half of the 10 lowest paid jobs in the country are in the food industry. Food and meat processing plants, those are the most dangerous and exploitive workplaces in the country. Overall, only 15 cents of every dollar we spend in the supermarket actually goes to farmers. The rest goes to processing and marketing the food. It is a system designed to funnel money 
into the hands of corporate shareholders and executives while exploiting farmers and workers and deceiving consumers about choice, abundance, and efficiency, said Amanda Starbuck, policy analyst at Food and Water Watch. The consolidation runs deep. Four firms or fewer controlled at least 50% of the market for 79% of the groceries. For almost a third of shopping items, the top firms controlled at least 75% of the market share. For example, PepsiCo owns five of the most popular brands, including Tostitos, Lay's, and Fritos. 93% of the sodas we drink are owned by three companies. Same goes for breakfast cereals. 73% of breakfast cereals, despite the shelves stacked with different boxes. Now, the need to radically upgrade our food system goes well beyond even our personal health. This is about species survival. The United Nations estimates that about a third of all human-caused greenhouse gas emissions is linked to food. We have the solutions. We know what they are. We can reduce animal consumption. We can also improve feeding techniques. We can reduce methane emissions and the amounts of gases released in manure. We could have better agricultural practices. We could do crop rotation. And a big one, we could reduce food waste. Almost 1 billion tons of food. Just like 17% of all food just goes in the trash. Producing and transporting and letting that food rot contributes more than 8% of global greenhouse gas. If food waste were a country, it would be the third largest greenhouse gas emitting country in the world. So what can we do individually? Well, we can shop at farmer's markets, for one, with reusable bags. We can eat locally grown foods. We can cut food waste by composting what we don't eat. And we can share this podcast. Oh, my Lord. Chicago history you never learned in school. My name is Alyssa Dykstrahaus, and I am an architectural tour guide in Chicago. I got curious about my city's past, and it is absolutely fascinating. I like to say Chicago has been Chicagoing since they started Chicago. Over the past few years, I immersed myself in the more obscure stories. I am brimming with excitement to share these stories with my friends and you. Let's face it, everyone knows about the Great Chicago Fire. But do you know about Captain Streeter and the formation of Streeterville? Find out about the origins of the phrase Mickey Finn. Oh, my lord will be equal parts history, irreverence, and love of the greatest city in the world. With all of our friends.